chapter. Okay, so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes today. We're actually starting into a new series. And so as we start, let's just take a moment really to silence our hearts, just to prepare ourselves uh, for the sermon as we worship together through the reading and preaching of God's Word. And we're going to be studying Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. So I'd encourage you to go ahead and flip there in your Bible um, just as we prepare to hear from it. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things. Yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Your word to us. It's your, your word intended to reveal yourself to us, to reveal our need for you, to teach us, to shape us, to make us ready, complete and ready for every good work that you've intended for us to do. So would you do that today? I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. As I mentioned this morning, we're starting into our study of Ecclesiastes. It's only 12 chapters long, so I would not expect this to take two and a half years to get through. should be a little bit quicker than that. Uh, actually, I, I think it's going to be about 15 sermons. We've broken it out. It's going to take us into January of next year. Uh, but, but I think it's going to be beneficial. But more important than the length of time that it's going to take us, let me just explain to you why I want to slow down. Let's take some time. Let's study this uh, verse by verse, passage by passage, to really think about what Solomon is teaching us. And first, just generally speaking, it's because it's Scripture, right? This is Solomon's voice. It's Solomon's wisdom that we're hearing, but it's really breathed out by God. This is his word breathed out by us. And as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, so it's good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We want to be complete. We want to be equipped. Well, we need the scripture to get there. And just in case you didn't know it already, the New Testament was not put together at the point that Paul wrote that to Timothy. It hadn't been assembled. It hadn't really, it, the letters had been written, many of them, but but the, it had not been fully assembled, so the scripture that he's speaking of just happens to be the Old Testament books that Ecclesiastes falls among. And so whether we realize it or not, whether we think about it or not, even this is God's word to us. More specifically, 
Uh, generally, I, I think it's something, you know, it's God's word and we need to hear it. But more specifically, I think the perspective that, it's hold, that it holds is a perspective that we need to hear. I think, as I've studied this book, as I've, I've done more preparation. This has been a difficult book to prepare for. It's been so many varying degrees of, of, of understanding and just different ways to approach it. Uh, it's been, I've, I've, I feel like this is one of the most difficult books to, I've had to prepare for. But, but I think, as I've come to this conclusion, this, is, this book is maybe one of the most complete and honest exposition of man's experience when we seek to be God or live without God rather than submit to God. I really think that this is an honest exposition of what it looks like to live in this world as much as we can apart from God. So some suggest that Solomon's just being pessimistic, you know, or uh, one, one preacher actually says that he believes that he's hit a midlife crisis, and so now he's hit this midlife crisis and he's just depressed. I, I don't think that's true. I think he's being real. I think he's being real honest. I think he's being, being transparent and completely authentic. I, I, and I think we need to hear this kind of honesty. By and large... The church, and I'm, I, I, when I say the church, I, I certainly mean us, but I also think the church in America, but, but not so broad that it's just the church in America, it's, it's us. By and large, I, I think that the church has, has, has often been and has largely been more influenced by the world God created than the, world, than, than the word that God has spoken. I don't have time to read the articles to you again. We've got too much to deal with in this text today, but... But I would just encourage you to go back and listen to the parts of the articles that I read to you last week of what biblical illiteracy is doing to the church. I don't think I'm exaggerating this point. And I think the the perspective that Solomon lays out for us here is the perspective of a people who are seeking to live their life apart from God such that he calls them back to fear God and obey his commandments. The church is, again, not just us, but it is us. It seems to me is just as likely to seek our identity in our, 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 not not just our identity, our purpose, our, our joy, our satisfaction, our peace, all those core desires that we hold as human beings we seek to find these things. We seek to find fulfillment for these things in our vocation, in our relationships, in our, in our social status, in stuff, for crying out loud, in entertainment, in all sorts of other things apart from Jesus Christ. I think the evidence of that is the fruit of that is shown over and over again. In Christ, we're certainly free to enjoy this stuff, these things, these, these, these gifts, if you will. But I think all too often, instead of just enjoying them, we displace him with them. This isn't a new problem. Blaise Pascal, who lived in the mid-1600s, writes of this problem. 
He, wrote a, he was writing a book, The Defense of the Christian Faith. He dies before he can publish it. And so someone came, comes along after, appreciated his teachings and his thoughts, and he put together these, these ideas into a book. And it, it, today it's off by, by many considered to be a classic. But he writes this in the midst of the 1600s. What is it then that this desire and this inability proclaim to us? But that there was once, a man, once in man a true happiness of which there now remained to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings. You hear that? It's the same thing I'm just mentioning. Seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. Even in the 1600s, before we had all these modern conveniences that were supposed to make our lives so good and now have wrapped the world in shiny plastic that make us desire it, before anything that we know today People in the 1600s were struggling with this same reality. They were seeking their identity, their purpose, their joy, their satisfaction, their contentment, their peace, and all the other things that we desire, seeking them to, in, in the world, the stuff that the world holds. But it goes even further back. You see, we didn't wait to start doing this in the 1600s. This wasn't a problem in, God's, in and among God's people and in the people of the world once the 1600s rolled around, Augustine, writing his confessions in the 300s, writes, Thou awakest us to delight in thy praise, for thou madest us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it repose in thee. Now, in case you don't speak King James, let me just translate that for you. You awake us to delight in your praise, for you made us... For yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now, you've probably heard these two ideas summarized in somewhere in your Christian life. Some, some preacher has probably at some point said something along the lines of every person in the world has a God shaped void in their heart, in their being, in who they are. Some credit, credit that to Augustine, others credit it to, to Pascal and and I think it's right, but I don't think either one of them are the ones that came up with it. Because I think it's true, and it is even true all the way back when Solomon wrote these words and talked about a people who are pursuing all kinds of things, and yet it is vanity upon vanities. You see, I think the reality is, is that we need to hear this because it is a perspective we need to be reminded of that natural to our flesh is a desire to fill our souls and our deepest longings with things other than the God who created us. It's been happening since we fell into sin. And we need to be reminded even today, maybe especially today, because today we can do something about it. We can't do anything about what's been done. But we can do something today. See, I, I want us to study these things because it's Scripture and it's worth it. I, I want us to study these things because it's, 
It's an age-old problem that we still deal with and speaks directly to our circumstances and situations today. But most importantly, as we hear from Solomon on the vanity of a life apart from God, as we study this, I long for us to be pointed to Jesus Christ. As we find the vanity of this life apart from God, I would long to see us pointed more fully, more completely, more passionately towards the God who chose to be our Savior. There's no mention of Jesus in this book. Solomon is going to point us to to fearing God and following his commands. And if we would even begin to do that, we will find Jesus in the end of that. Because Ecclesiastes is not a final word. It's not the last thing the Bible has to say. It's not the last bit of wisdom that God would have to offer to us. We will always land with Jesus. Because Jesus is the only hope we have of ever drawing a different conclusion than Solomon. He is the only hope we have of ever saying that because of Jesus, none of this was in vain. But before we get there, we have to start where Ecclesiastes starts. We just read it just a little bit ago. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? There's this, this, these two key phrases that he gives us that we need to understand. The vanity of vanities and, and under the sun. They're all the way through this book of the Bible. We have to, have to understand them before we go any further. Vanity of vanities, he says. Ecclesiastes is bookended with this phrase, vanities of vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You see it here in verses, chapter 1, verse 2, and you'll see it again at the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 8. You might say that this is the main theme of his writing, that this is the main theme of what he's sharing. And this repetition emphasizes the reality of how vain this is. In a sense, it was a superlative in a sense, it's the same thing as saying Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. The things that Solomon is sharing with us, the things that he is pointing out, he is saying is vanity of vanities. It's the most vain thing that can be. It is the highest level of vanity. Well, what's vanity? Because, I mean, we could understand that to be, I'm pretty vain. I mean, I like looking at myself, right? That's what we could mean. Is that what he means? That... that I'm the, I'm the most vain person in the world, and you're the most vain. He can't possibly mean that. So what does he mean by vanity? The original word, the word from the Hebrew, is the word hebel. It's used in some form 38 times in this book, and it literally means breath or vapor. It speaks about, uh, like you go out into uh, a cold winter night, you breathe out, and there's this vapor, right? You see this vapor. It's here, it's gone, it's, it, it dissipate, dissipates. But, but figuratively speaking, it can refer to the brevity of something. So breath or vapor, you know, it's short-lived. It doesn't, it doesn't stay around long. Or it could be speaking to the futility of something, the, the inability to grasp hold, the inability to actually accomplish its intended purpose. Some translations of the Bible use the word meaningless as if, that was, as if it had no purpose. Now, I don't think we need to go that far. I think that's a little bit too far. 
But personally, after reading several different perspectives and working through this and reading this whole thing out and thinking through the context, what could he possibly be saying? I think he's really getting at the futility of the situation in which we live under the sun. See, I think as he cries out, Hebel, Hebel, all is Hebel, I think he's saying that futile, futile, all is futile under the sun. Our pursuits in this life are futile. They're unable to produce the the lasting or useful results that we long for. Yes, they're short-lived. Yes, our lives are short in comparison to all of eternity. Yes, our lives are a wisp of smoke. They are a vapor. But I think his intention in this book, in this sharing of his wisdom, is to help us see that not only are they short, but under the sun there is futility to them. What does he mean then under the sun? It's a phrase that's used 28 times. It's only ever used in all of the Old Testament. It's only ever used in Ecclesiastes. But it qualifies, this this phrase, under the sun, qualifies his term, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It gives us some understanding of what he's making reference to. For example, if I say everyone in this room loves me, I'm not talking about everyone in the world, right? I'm not talking about every person that exists. He's not talking about all of existence as he says this. He is speaking about a very specific realm of being. He is talking about a specific part of existence. He is speaking about life under the sun. Douglas O'Donnell, I didn't put this on the screen, I probably should have, but he is helpful in his comments on this in the book of, in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. He writes this, the phrase under the sun draws a geographical line between God, who is in heaven, and man, who lives on earth. So you see a geographical line, a a difference of place, if you will. But he says it's also a theological one. This phrase designates not the secular life, life without reference to God, but the fallen world that both the secular and non-secular share as sinners under God's curse, his faithful carrying out of his promised punishment to Adam. That's what the curse is. It's God's faithful carrying out of his promised punishment to Adam. That's what's found on earth. The idea here is that God is outside of that curse. God, who is everywhere we want to be, we can't escape him. We can't go anywhere from him. That's what the psalmist tells us. It doesn't mean that God is not here under the sun, but his his being, his existence is not subject to the curse against sin. And so what I think this phrase under the sun refers to, this life under the sun is a pertinent or applicable to every person who has ever lived. Every one of us, every last one of us, even professing believers, even those of us who came out of the womb saying, Jesus is my Savior. And it doesn't really happen, but I know some of you don't really remember when that happened. It's just you were so young. Every one of us feel the consequence of sin. We live in this world feeling 
effects of his curse on sin. The thorn and thistle infested ground, the sun-soaked sweaty toil of the ground, our bodies dying and returning to the ground is not found with God in heaven, but we experience it here under the sun. This is where we live. And what he says in his wisdom is that everything based on his observation, based on what he can perceive, based on what he can understand, is suffering futility because of God's curse against sin. Because God is subjecting it, if you will, to futility. Now, let me just make sure you understand, Solomon's not just having a bad day. He's not just decided, he woke up grumpy and is like, oh man, God is distant. So, futility, futility, vanity of vanities. Now, this is a biblical perspective. There's a reality that we live in a world suffering under the weight of God's curse. Romans 8, 19 through 20. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation, the, 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 the place, the, the, the substance, the, the, the things that God created that he spoke into existence. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. They didn't choose it. It didn't want it. But because of him who subjected it, that's a reference to God. You go back and read that in context, in the context of Romans 8. It is demonstrating to us that God is the one who subjected the creation to futility, not because the creation chose futility, but because God determined in his righteousness and in his holiness that he would subject it to it. Let me just point out the word futility. Here in the Greek, it is the same word that the Hebrews would use to to translate Hebel into Greek. In fact, some scholars would suggest that this is the closest we come to seeing Ecclesiastes referenced in the New Testament. I don't know if that's exactly true. I don't know if I completely can agree with that, but that's what they see. The the, the reality is, is that because of our sin, the whole created order... Every person that has ever lived, ever will live, every animal, every plant, the very ground we stand on is being subjected to futility because God has done that. You can also see this in in Genesis at the point at which God pronounces the curse. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. I mean, this is not a picture we like to hold of God. We We like a more positive, a little more friendly, a little less frightful picture of our God. But we need to know him. We need to understand what our rebellion against this holy, righteous God has has caused, has, has brought consequence of. Genesis 3, 17 through 19 says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. you know, just so you know, this is not where the curse begins. He speaks first to the serpent, promises enmity, promises war and strife and trouble, and one day that the 
that the, the, the serpent will be crushed and, and his seed will be the one that does that. He speaks to the woman and, and brings about the, calls out the curse of pain and childbirth and the desire for her husband, but her husband will rule over her. And then he comes to Adam and he says this, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, because you didn't listen to me, not me, him, sorry. Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Before Adam hears what's, what, what he's going to receive, the curse he's going to feel, the curse he's going to experience, God calls out the curse on the very ground. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the, sweat of your, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, the reality is we live in a world that feels the weight of God's curse on sin. And when Solomon looks around, a man who's been given wisdom and knowledge from God. I don't know if you know Solomon's story. Solomon is approached by God. Like God's like, hey, what would, what would you have me give you? And Solomon says, hey, your nation is amazing. It's powerful. It's, 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 it's like no other. So, so I need wisdom and knowledge. And God says, you know, because you didn't ask for stuff, because you didn't ask for, for notoriety, that kind of thing, because you asked for wisdom and knowledge, I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to add wealth. And I'm going to add notoriety. I'm going to add all these other things, but I'm going to give you the wisdom and knowledge that you asked for. He comes to not be known as the wisest man in all the world. But in this book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is looking out on the world. He's looking at a fallen world. He's looking at something that, that's not distant from God, but suffering as a result of its sin against God. And so he looks out and he sees the futility of life under the sun. He sees the lack of gain in the life under the sun. It doesn't accomplish what it sets out to accomplish. We will never set out, never accomplish what we set out to accomplish. We will never gain what we like to gain. Whatever we strive after, it's, it's part of a cursed world and will always end in futility. You just think about what's happening in our world around us today. You don't have to look far. Just think about the circumstances you hear on the news all around you today. I mean, we're still dealing with racism. Oh, I thought we dealt with that in the 50s and the 60s. No, we didn't. Because nothing we set out to do will accomplish all the purpose we intended to do because we are a fallen people pursuing fallen goals. Well, now we're going to do something about racism. I doubt that I'm alive in another 50, 60 years, but I'm, I'm betting that if the Lord tarries, racism will be just as real in this world then as it is now because our pursuits are futile. That's what Solomon is saying. Oh, there's injustice and oppression in the world? Yes, there always has been. In fact, go back to the beginning. Go back to Adam and Eve. And the moment that they eat the fruit, God says, you're going to desire, your desire is going to be for your husband. And in the text, in the context, or in the language, you see it's going to be her desire to rule over him, but he's going to rule over her. There's an immediate tension put between them. And people are going to use power to oppress others. And, and, and you don't believe that's going to happen. Just look at the very next story that follows. They had children and Cain. 
angry and jealous, uses his power to kill his brother. This isn't all Solomon has to say, but it's where he starts. But he makes his point not by drawing so much on Scripture, but, but on what he observes in his wisdom. And points out in this rhetorical question, looking at what men gain, what men profit, looking at their lives, and he asks, what does man profit for all his toil under the sun? The answer implied is nothing. You've already heard it read, and I read it in Genesis. The reason work is so difficult. You ever wondered why you have this dream job set out in front of you, and then you get it, and it's not all it's cracked up to be? It, it always is, is interesting to me when, when somebody asks, hey, uh, you like your new job? Oh, yeah, it's great. And then you find out in a few months, ah, you know, it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's because of where we live. It's because it's under the curse of God's, uh, uh, under God's curse as a result of our sin, and it has been made to be toil. What should have produced fruit isn't producing fruit. What should have allowed us and enabled us to flourish and the earth around us to flourish is producing thorns and thistles. And Solomon could have pointed there. He could have pointed all the way back to the curse, but Solomon had been given wisdom. Solomon had been given knowledge. So he looks out at the world and he sees all this work. All this work is ending in futility. No gain, no profit, nothing left over. And so I draw this conclusion. To work to gain anything in this life under God's curse is an exercise in futility. I think that's the point of this passage. I think that's the point of what Solomon is highlighting in this poem that opens this book and he shows us that. He shows us that repeatedly. We're going to see it happen over and over all the way through this, this, this book. And, and, and he starts right here by saying, look, nothing changes. Nothing is changing. Look around you. A generation goes and a generation comes. People are born and then they die. And then someone else is born and then they die. And then someone else is born and then they die. Nothing is changing for all our medical advancements. Nothing is changing. We're still being born and we're still dying. But the earth remains. The earth remains. The, the, the earth that we were supposed to rule, the earth that we were supposed to subdue, the earth that we were supposed to, to live in and flourish through, it remains. Nothing's changing. The sun rises and the sun sets again. And you know what happens tomorrow? The sun rises and the sun sets again. And you know what's going to happen the day after that? The sun's going to rise and the sun's going to set again. Nothing changes. The winds blow and they continue to blow. They blow from the north to the south, he says. I don't know where, where he lived, if they really always blew from the north to the south, but the idea here is, is that they blow from the north to the south, and you know what happens is they keep blowing from the north to the south. Nothing stops them. And they never run out. There's no end to the wind. It just keeps blowing because nothing changes. Streams of water run into the sea, but the sea never fills up. It's almost like a bathtub that has the plug pulled out of it. The water can just run, and it just never gets full. It just constantly keeps on flowing, constantly keeps staying, staying basically at the same level. And isn't it interesting that the streams don't run dry? 
They just keep flowing. Nothing changes. We have a lot of, a lot of activity here. People coming, people going. They, nothing changes. There seems to be a change. There's a lot of movement. A whole lot of activity. And where many Old Testament passages, the Psalms and, and, and Job, I, many Old Testament passages was look at the glory, the sovereignty, the bigness of God as they look at creation. Solomon takes another perspective. In wisdom, he looks at this creation and he says, look at the futility of the life we live. The cycles of the earth don't end and they don't change. They don't even seem to care that we are here. And I know that modern science would say, oh, that's not necessarily true. I guess we'll know in about 50 to 100 years. I'm betting Solomon's right. I don't, I don't think that means we run around and not care. I'm not saying quit recycling. I'm not saying just throw your trash on the ground. I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't seek to be good stewards of this earth God has given us. Generations are going to come, generations are going to go, and so long as God desires, the earth is going to endure. The sun's going to keep rising, the wind's going to keep blowing, the streams are going to keep flowing. Nothing's going to change. Because life under the sun seems really futile. There's nothing new. In verses 9 and 10, he comes down and he says, Whoa, there's nothing new. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Nothing satisfies. I, that's the next thing you should see on the screen. Thank God for notes. Nothing satisfies. All this activity, there's absolutely no change. And, and Solomon points out the wearisomeness of it. It's all wearisome. In verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. We can't even say enough words about the weariness of it. We can't speak it out of existence. We can't change it by what we say. There's not enough words to, to change this. Even our hearing and seeing will only ever leave us wanting. We never get tired of talking about it. We talk about the weather every day. <laughs> In fact, we make sure it's part of our daily news routine. Do you want to know what the weather's doing? That's important, right? So I can go out and live my futile life. I mean, we're just adding to our futility because we're never going to be satisfied because in the winter, it's going to be too hot or too cold. In the summer, it's going to be too hot. I just wish it were winter. I just wish it were summer. I just, I love the fall, but when the fall's there, I can't wait for the spring. Cycle after cycle, no change after no change, and we are never satisfied. And nothing is new. Verses 9 and 10. Is there a, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a new thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It's already been in, in the ages before us. It's almost like he knows this question's coming. Oh, no, there's something new. I found it. I'll tell you there's something new. It's, look here. I, I'm preaching from an iPad. I'm not using paper. This is new. You know, the, what he's saying is not that technologies aren't advanced and not that we don't learn how to, how to put things in, t together differently so that we can take advantage of them. Have you ever created anything out of nothing? Have you ever been able, have you ever known anyone, have you ever known a scientist that didn't just discover something but actually created 
something, we can't do it. We can't make new stuff. We can just discover things as if they were new. Everything we put together has always existed from the moment God spoke. As he began to put the chaos into order, as he brought the, the, everything together, and he made the ground come up out of the water, and he put the animals on the ground and the fish in the sea, as all of those things were coming together, as he formed the man out of the dust, God made these things. All we've ever been able to do since is put them together in different ways. And finally, be allowed to find things that work together in different ways. There is no such thing as a new thing in this life under the sun. I need to qualify that because of where we're about to go, but nothing is new. Nothing changes, nothing satisfies, nothing is new, and listen, nothing is remembered. Isn't it interesting that we all want, and not, I, let, me, let, me, let me pull that back, not we all want, but a large portion of our world wants to be known. I mean, look at Facebook. Look at people on YouTube seeking to be viral, make their viral videos. You realize the number of videos that, that go viral are minuscule in comparison to the number of videos floating around out there on, on, um, on YouTube. Look at, the, look at what's happening with social media. We, we give people a platform, and they want their opinion known. They want to be known. They're looking for a way to make their name known. And, and in the end, what he teaches us is no one and nothing is remembered. Do you remember the, the name of your great-great-grandfather? Some of you might, but I bet most of you don't. He was in your family, for crying out loud. Don't you know him? And then the names of people that we can remember, I mean, they're known for things that a lot of people don't want to be known for. Hitler. Oh, everybody remembers Hitler. Right? But still, it's minuscule. Minuscule in comparison to the number of people who were forgotten. You consider the number of people who have been born and who have died, the generations that have come and the generations that go, the, the people who were remembered, that's a minuscule number in contrast. I mean, we don't even remember the famous people. You think Kim Kardashian is going to matter in 30 years? Probably not. As soon as, as soon as her physical beauty fades and people quit liking to look at her and she quits being who she tends to be, people will move on. And in a generation or two, nobody's going to try to keep up with her. E even someone like Jesus. Oh, his name's known, right? Here. But you know, there's a lot of the world that has never heard his name. Or if they have, they've not known him. They've heard little snippets. They've heard little bits and pieces. Oh, he was a great teacher. He was a prophet. He was an important man in history. He, he fought for social causes. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. You see, most of the world and maybe many 
of the people that we live next door to and work with and maybe even some that we go to church with. Don't even remember a man like Jesus. See, nothing in this futile life changes. Nothing satisfies, Solomon tells us. Nothing is new, Solomon tells us. Nothing is remembered. He looks out in wisdom, the wisdom given to him by God, and he says nothing. It's all futile in this life under the sun. It will benefit you. It will gain you. It will profit you nothing. And so I can't help but draw this conclusion. To work, to gain anything from this life under God's curse is an exercise in futility. Well, do you feel as good as I do? <laughs> like, why do we even get up in the morning? Like, what is it? Is it worth it? Is, if it's all futility, shouldn't I just lay in bed and just let it go? Like, is there any reason? But listen, his qualification doesn't just tell us where the futility lies. He points us to the place where hope resides. You see, yes, this passage is full of weighty, heavy truths that make us feel <laughs> futile. But that's only in this life under the sun. I've already told you this. I've already pointed to it at the very beginning of this sermon. That there is more to the scriptures, more to God's plan of redemption than his curse on sin. The only hope we have to escape the futility of our toil in this life is found through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Our work may be futile, but his is not Ours is a life of hope because of him. Ours is a, is a way to see the new things because of him. Ours is a way to experience gain and profit and goodness because of him. Solomon was able to say there was nothing new under the sun because he had never met Jesus. Let me tell you about something new. A virgin gave birth. You think that doesn't matter? That had never happened under the sun. That's not some new thing. Oh, you say, well, people have been giving birth. Yeah, it takes two. That had never happened under the sun. God had become a man. That had never happened under the sun. Jesus, the word that was with God and was God, put on flesh and dwelt among us. God had never done that before. This was totally and radically new, thinking things don't change. Things changed. When Jesus stepped on the face of this earth. He died as a sacrifice for our sins. That's not a totally new concept. People have been killing things as substitutionary atonements for generations. It's written in the law, the, the Mosaic law, to kill animals on, on your behalf. It's not a new concept of killing something and the blood being shed as a sacrifice. But after the sacrifice... Rather than returning to the dust, he rose from the grave and he stood, he now stands in heaven waiting for his return. You see, brothers and sisters, there is something altogether new about this man, Jesus. Not only is he new, but by his work and what he's doing, he is making all things new. This was his testament. This was his testimony. This is what he said to John at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21.5, and he was seated on the throne as Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new. You see, he's removing the curse. He's lifting us out 
from under the, the, the life under the sun. He's lifting us up to a realm beyond life under the sun. Write this down, Jesus says, for these words are trustworthy and true. The only hope we have to escape the futility of our toil in this life is found through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Listen, if I could encourage you to do anything with these words of Solomon, if I could encourage you to do anything with this sermon that I have preached, with this sense of futility, with the sense of this weightiness, I would tell you to run and hide yourself in Christ. Not run in fear from a God who's brought a curse on this world who now says under the sun is futility. But run to a God and hide yourself in the hope he has given you that you might know the newness of his life. (laughs) Run to him, put your hope in him, trust in him and his work alone because in him we are changed. This is what the whole book of Ephesians kind of demonstrates to us as it opens up and and gives us this beautiful exposition of who God says we are, blessed with every spiritual blessing, chosen, predestined for adoption, uh, chosen to be holy and blameless, predestined for adoption, redeemed, forgiven of our sins. We are saved. We are recipients of his grace and not just a little bit of grace, but he has lavished it upon us. We are given his, we are given an understanding of his mystery. And then he turns around and says in chapter two, beginning in chapter two, You were dead. That's 2 verse 1. And then in 2 verse 4, he says, but by God's mercy, you are alive. Tell me things don't change in Jesus Christ. Things change. (laughs) That's the only way. He is the only way in him. We finally find our satisfaction. John records for us Jesus' words. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It is a picture of complete, total, utter satisfaction where the rest of the world is running in futility because there is no change and there is no satisfaction. He says you will be satisfied. Brothers, sisters, run to him. In him, we're made new. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, a messed up group of people, a radically messed up group of people. I mean, they had problems in his second letter that he addresses this. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Listen, in this life under the sun, there is no change. There is no satisfaction. There is no newness. But in Christ, you are made new. A new creation in him. And in him, you know that desire to be known that to one degree or other we all feel? In him, we are known. We're not just remembered. We are known right now in this present moment. And you will always be known. 1 Corinthians 8, 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. So, quit chasing after all the futile things that this world would have to offer. (laughs) Because your only hope, our only hope, to escape the futility of our toil is to find, find it through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Lay down all your vain and futile pursuits 
and turn wholeheartedly, turn wholeheartedly and with great hope to Jesus. The reality is, is that a lot of you sitting in this room are Christians and you, you've done that at some point in your life. But there's things you're trying to hold on to, things you're trying to cling to. Let them go. Listen to what Solomon has to say. It's futile. And some of you sitting in this room have never turned to him, have never begun to run after him. Oh, there may be the image of it on, your, on the surface of your life, but it's never been in your heart. You've never trusted him. You're seeking to toil away and work your way to him. It is futile. Turn to Jesus. Don't miss the words of Solomon. If you will not turn to Jesus, all you have is the futility that ends in death. You'll be a part of a generation that comes. You'll be part of a generation that goes. There will be no change. There will be no satisfaction. There will be nothing new. And in a couple of generations, you won't be remembered. The promise of Christ is far better. Would you trust in him? Let's pray. Father God, as I think about where we sit today, and consider the realities of what's before us. Help us. Help us. Help, uh, show us. Open our eyes that we can see. Give us the wisdom and the knowledge that you gave Solomon that we could respond, that we could see the distinction, the difference, and that we could quit lying to ourselves about these, these pursuits we have that we consider to be noble in some way. That we seek to not just enjoy, but that we use to displace you from our life. Don't let us leave here today at the same level of futility that we walked in here. Would you lead us by your spirit to lay our deadly doings down so that we can know you and all the good that comes from knowing you and being known by you. And if there be one today, if there be any today, Father, that have lived a religious life but never a faith-filled life, if there be any here today that have never trusted you, I would ask for you to open their eyes, regenerate their souls, that they might come to you in faith and, and begin to know the blessings and the benefits of all the gain, all the profit, all the goodness that there is in knowing you. I pray this, Jesus, in your name for your fame. Amen.